Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I kind of wondered what, what we would have as far as uh, attendance today. Uh, up in Maine, this is, uh, this is barely a blip on the radar where I came from. This would be uh, um, not even considered any kind of a snow whatever. Um, and I, when I walked outside, I was like, I, I mean, I immediately went, oh, it's, this is cold. And I can tell that six years in Kentucky has ruined me. I used to love snow, used to love the cold, all that, I, everything opposite of what Matt said, um, but I'm now, I think, right where Matt is at, so I don't know. But anyway, it's good to be back in Ohio, I will say that. So here's your question for today. Have you ever been in a situation where you had no choice, and I mean no choice, but to trust in God providing for you? You ever been in that situation? Maybe you're out of work and you're struggling to find another job, or maybe you're out of work now. Maybe due to the industry you're in or your age or your resume isn't up to par, whatever the reason, you're finding it virtually impossible to find a good job. Maybe you've been asking God for a long time for a spouse or for healing for yourself or a loved one. You don't seem to be getting an answer. Maybe you had to trust in God's provision in a court case or in a divorce or in a custody battle. Have you ever had to really trust in God's provision? I want you to think about that. Don't just let that float on through. Think about that. Have you ever been in a situation where you were tempted to try to make something happen on your own, but God was telling you, don't do it. Don't do that. Just trust me. You're going to mess it up. Well, today we're going to look at the lives of two men. A man by the name of Abram and his nephew Lot. These two men represent two radically different approaches when it comes to dealing with an experience of need. The approach of Abram involves reliance on God. The approach of Lot, reliance on yourself. Two very, very different approaches to life. In fact, you could even say that this is the dividing line, not only for the human race, but also the dividing line for our own personal spirituality as well. Am I going to rely on God in this situation, or am I going to rely on myself? Am I going to trust in what God can do, or am I going to take matter into my own hands? How many times have we done that? I think most of us probably know the name of Abraham, a man who lived 4,000 years ago, and is considered to be the father of faith for the majority of the world today. Abraham is claimed as the father of faith for the Jews, for the Muslims, and for the Christians. Did you know that? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament calls Abraham the man of faith. See, faith isn't just something that you just jump into when you first decide to trust in Jesus for your salvation. That's just the start of your faith journey. And as we look a little closer at the life of Abraham, we're going to find that faith is necessary for every single part of life, every season of life, and every challenge of life. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 13? Genesis chapter 13, starting verse 1, going to verse 4, and would you stand for the reading of God's word? Genesis 13, starting with verse 1, going through verse 4. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and his wife and, and everything he had and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier. 
and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. You may be seated. You want to keep your Bibles open to chapter 13. We're going to be kind of floating in, in and out all through that, uh, that chapter. As I said, we're going to see two very different approaches to life. The way of Abram and the way of Lot. Trusting in God versus trusting in ourselves. You know, we often have a way of sugarcoating our memories of the superstars in Scripture, right? I mean, it's not like Abram had a perfect faith or that he always relied on God in times of crisis because he was human after all. Folks, the journey of faith is not a straight line. I think you realize this. It's often three steps forward, two steps back. But do you know why that is? I'm sure you have a sneaking suspicion. It's because in our weakness and in our sinfulness, we often find ourselves trusting more in ourselves rather than trusting in God. You ever been there? We have more confidence in what we can do on our own instead of what God can do through us. We take the path of least resistance, don't we? We choose short-term escapes instead of long-term persevering. But Abram's faith is established to all of us by the way that he handles his setbacks and his failures. Genesis chapter 12 tells us about how Abram went from the promised land to Egypt because of a famine. Genesis 12.10 says, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Now, we're not told why there was a famine in that part of the world, but we do know that there was frequent droughts in that area. Could have been a swarm of locusts, maybe an unsuccessful harvest, we don't know. But because of the famine, Abram was faced with a major test. Am I going to trust God and his provision by staying in the promised land, or... Am I going to do what I've always done and follow the the path of least resistance? You see, God sometimes tests us with difficulties in life. You ever notice that? And it's not because God doesn't know how we'll do on the test. It's because he already knows your character and my character. God tests us to show us to ourselves. God tests us with challenging circumstances as a way of holding up a mirror to ourselves. It's always uncomfortable. So we might see our own heart. You see, God didn't want Abram to go to Egypt. 19th century pastor and author, Reverend F.B. Meyer, said this about Abram's choice. In the figurative language of Scripture, Egypt stands for an alliance with the world. Abram acted simply on his own judgment. He looked at at his difficulties and became paralyzed with fear. He grasped at the first means of deliverance that suggested itself, much as a drowning man will grasp at any passing twig. Ah, fatal mistake, but how many make it still? There may be true children of God, and yet in a moment of panic, they will adopt methods of delivering themselves that, to say the least, are questionable, sowing the seeds of sorrow and disaster to save themselves from some trouble. That sound familiar to anyone? So it's not that Abram always trusted God's provision clearly, because when he was tested, he ran where? To Egypt. And it was in Egypt that he met disaster and he almost lost his wife. See, our choices to not trust in God affect more than just us, right? They affect those that are close to us as well. Collateral damage. Abram didn't always completely trust in God's provision. But where his faith was on point was in how he handled his setbacks and his failures. What we see in Genesis 13, 1 through 4 is Abram backtracking all the way up from Egypt through the Negev region and back to Bethel, the place 
where he built his last altar. Now, why is that significant? Well, because it takes faith to backtrack the entire distance that he walked away from God. You know, for most of us, we want instant healing from chronic failure, right? For example, this is probably right front and center. It's January. We neglect our diet for years. Then we go to a health food store. We shop online for some instant weight loss product, some pill we can take all those pounds off with, right? Come on now. We neglect our marriage for years. Then we want instant marital intimacy and total trust the moment we're ready to fix our marriages. We spend years pounding bad habits into our lives, hardwiring ourselves to engage in certain addictive behaviors. But the moment we pray, we want instant freedom and instant deliverance. Sound familiar? You know, Scripture describes a Christian life as a walk. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And it takes faith to backtrack step by step by step over the entire distance that we've walked away from God or damaged our marriages or pounded a bad habit into our lives. See, the first step towards restoration after a setback, after we've blown it, after we've not trusted in God, not found our fulfillment in Jesus but in something else, the very first step back is to restore your relationship with God. That's it. Take a look at Genesis 13, 4 again. And where he had first built an altar, there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So where did Abram go? Well, he went to Bethel to do what? To build an altar to the Lord. Abram went back to the place where he had gotten it right before. And now he worships the Lord again. So before you repair your marriage or get free of a bad habit or sort out your friendships, before you do anything, start with your relationship with God. Build an altar to the Lord in your home, in the corner of your bedroom, your study, your basement, your dining room table. It doesn't matter. Find a place where you can meet with God. Abram showed great faith after his setback because he is willing to retrace his steps in order to engage in long obedience in the same direction. I think great faith is shown by anyone who's willing to get back, if, get back up and to try again. Because people who are willing to keep trying are saying, yes, we made some mistakes. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we experienced setbacks. But we're going to trust God for long-term slow healing, not instant success. We're going to practice a long obedience in the same direction, step by step by step. We're not going to just lay down in the middle of the road and die. We're going to pick ourselves up, brush ourselves off, and keep walking that road of healing. That's what Abraham did. Abraham not only had the faith to handle setbacks, but he also displayed a faith that could handle success as well. Take a look at Genesis 13, 2 and verses 5 and 6. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And then verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. You see, Abram needed a strong faith to be able to handle his great wealth as well. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Come on, Pastor, really? Seriously? Pretty sure I can handle great wealth without faith. Bring it on. I'll take it. Kind of reminds me of that scene from the, music, the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody seen that? <laughs> Where the poor Taylor Perchick says, Money is the world's curse. 
And the star of the play, Tevye, snaps back, may the Lord smite me with great wealth, and may I never recover. Right? Boston College sociologist Dr. Paul Shervish has studied and surveyed the super wealthy for decades. Most of the people that he surveyed are, are worth, on average, over $80 million apiece. And after surveying hundreds of these super wealthy people, Dr. Shervish says, and this is his quote, money is like fire. It will warm your feet or it will burn your socks off. Scottish historian and writer Thomas Carlyle says, adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. I thought that one was pretty good. And it's so true. In my 30 plus years of pastoring, I've seen hundreds of people who have shown extraordinary faith and grace in times of suffering. I've been amazed by it. I've watched people bear up under incredible pressures, cancer treatments, the loss of loved ones, accidents that completely changed their way of life. But yet they continued on in their faith and a lot of times stronger. See, it's a rare person who continued to have a white hot relationship with God while everything's going unbelievably well. And they're on top of the world and they're experiencing massive success. You see, the true test of faith is not just how you handle failure, but it's also how you handle success. The true test of faith is not just how you handle problems, but also how you handle prosperity. That's why I'm so impressed when you see a world-famous athlete handling their lives and their relationships really well. For every C.J. Stroud, a devoted Christian who gives to charity, visits, visits kids in the hospital consistently. For every Tim Tebow or Peyton Manning who give back to their communities. For every person like that, you can find a dozen other world-famous athletes who have gone bankrupt or blown tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars on parties and drugs and expensive things that are now repossessed. See, it's incredibly difficult to live in the spotlight, to be given all the accolades to succeed financially beyond anyone's wildest dreams and still walk closely to God. See, when when you've got it made, right, it's really hard to fully rely on God. It's easy to think, why do I need to trust in God? I got so many layers of protection now. I got insurance, backup plans, investments, the best doctors, best lawyers, accountants, financial planners. So for those of you who are financially successful, how do you continue to walk closer to God? How do you do it? Well, just watch Abram, right? Because he's a model of faith on how to handle success God's way. So that's Abram handling success. How about how Abram handled trouble and conflict? Well, That's where Abram's nephew, Lot, shows up. Genesis 13, verses 5 to 9. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. What we see in Abram here is a faith that can handle strife and conflict and friction and trouble. And the truly surprising thing is that Abram allowed Lot to choose first. This wasn't normal. You need to understand that Abram was living in a traditional culture. This isn't 21st century America that worships the youth where every advertiser tries to reach that 18 to 49-year-old market. 
all the movies, all the media, all the clothes, everything in our culture is geared towards a younger demographic. But Abram lived in a Middle Eastern society where the old were supremely valued. Abram could have said, look, Lot, I'm the older one here, so here's what I want. But he didn't do that. He said, Lot, if you want to cut in line ahead of me, go right ahead. The reason Abram didn't feel like he had to fight for every last scrap is because his faith gave him peace. Does your faith give you peace today? He 100% believed that God would provide for him. That if he was faithful to God, God would be faithful to him. So how about you? How have you handled conflict in the past? With faith or with fear? With grabbing or with giving? Have you ever been entangled in a big fight over money? Maybe you're trying to settle a family member's estate. I had a friend that was dealing with this. Did you ever get to the point where you said, you know what, I don't want to live like this anymore. There's more to life than who gets mom's jewelry or who gets her car. Sad situation. Have you ever come to the place of saying, this is not worth it. I'm losing sleep. I'm anxious. It's eating me alive. God has something better for me. I'm going to trust God in this conflict. Have you ever heard of Alistair and Johnny Brownlee? Does that name strike a chord for anybody? Probably not. They're two long-distance runners from England. I don't know. Maybe Matt has heard of them. I don't know. During the Cozumel Triathlon back in 2016, the two brothers were neck and neck. In first and second place nearing the finish line when suddenly Johnny started to slow as his legs began cramping up and threatening to give out on him. But Alistair, Alistair had a different idea. He had about a two and a half minute video. I want you to watch this. Johnny has to win and to be sure of taking the title. And right now he seems to have lost control of his legs. And this is worrying. Oh, and he's starting to slow. And there is a little way to go. There's half a K to go. And Johnny is running out of time and is losing. He's losing his sense of direction. This is worrying. Oh, goodness me. This is a horrible sight. Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course. And Alistair's stopped to help him along. And Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here, Matt. Is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee. And they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third. But Johnny can hardly stand. And Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me. What an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel.
I've never seen anything like that anywhere in world sport. Worrying scenes all around. So in classic brother mode, he just kind of shoves him across the finish line. I thought that was interesting. He just kind of went, there you go. You made it. Now, the older brother, Alistair, represents the way of Abram. He gave up his rights to first place. Think about what he did. Because he cared about something greater, something bigger than his own personal success. He was living for far more than just crossing the finish line in first place. That's a picture of faith, folks. And it's also a picture of Jesus, who even though he was already in the family of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself and took on himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself to death. That's Jesus carrying us and pushing us across that finish line. On the other hand, Henry Shoman, the guy in green who ran past the brothers, represents the way of Lot. I mean, how dumb did he look? Pounding his chest as he ran by those two heroes, Henry thought he had won, but he ended up looking kind of ridiculous. That's the way of Lot. Let's take a quick look at Lot, Genesis 13, verses 10 to 13. Lot looked around and saw what, that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. What you see in Lot, first of all, is a failure to internalize his faith. I think that's a disease that a lot of us as Americans have, a failure to internalize our faith. F.B. Meyer, who I quoted earlier, said this about Lot. Listen to this. Lot was one of the men who take the, who take the right steps, not because they're prompted by obedience to God, but because their friends are taking them. In other words, Lot was one of those guys who just kind of allowed himself to be carried along by the current. As long as Lot was with his uncle Abram, he was good. He was golden. Looked like he had faith, but Lot, Lot only had an echo of faith. He never internalized his faith in God. Lot's so-called faith was something that was just part of his family. It's part of the tradition of his home. It was the way he was raised. God wasn't living in Lot's soul. He was the kind of person that never really thought about his faith. He just kind of went along with the crowd. In today's world, Lot would be someone who goes to church because that's what our family has always done on Sunday. But in reality, they have no personal faith in God of their own that makes a real difference in their lives. You know, back when I was a youth pastor, I had teens in the youth group who, see, who seemed pretty excited about God. But when they went off to college and they took their first philosophy course, philosophy 101 or whatever, or the first religion class, and they sat down for the first time to listen to a skeptical professor who was deconstructing their faith. They suffered a major collapse of faith. I've had multiple conversations with former students about that. Why? Because their faith was never internalized. It was never truly theirs. It was only an echo of faith. Dr. Christian Smith, one of America's leading sociologists, wrote one of the truly great books about the faith of young people called Souls in Transition. Great book. He conducted some massive surveys of young adults and personally interviewed hundreds of other young adults. 
And one of the questions Dr. Smith asked was, what factors go into teenagers continuing in their faith into their 20s? What are the things that matter? According to Dr. Smith, on average, the things didn't quite, that didn't quite matter as much, which I found interesting, were things like attending a Christian school or going on missions trips or going to camps or retreats. He said that those things do work well for some kids, but on average, they aren't major factors for the kids who keep walking with God into their 20s. That was interesting for someone who spent 18 years working with students and did a lot of those things. So what factors do show up? Well, things like a teenager's frequent personal prayer time. The greater the frequency of a teen's personal prayers, the more likely that teen will continue on in their faith. Strong parental faith. The more committed their parents are during a teen's teenage years, the more often they will continue to take their faith seriously. The importance of a teen's faith during their teen years. The greater the importance of their faith in every decision-making during their teen years, the more a teen will continue on with their faith. Personal spiritual experiences. The more often a teen has their own personal experiences of a prayer answered or a miracle or that they've had a powerful spiritual experience, the more they'll stay with their faith, which I would say can come at a camp, can come at a retreat. But that's just me. Having their questions answered. The more often a teen has their questions about science or the world or sexuality, the tough questions answered directly, the more they'll continue on in their faith. Frequent scripture reading, getting into the word as much as possible, allowing it to grab hold of a teen's heart is so crucial to them keeping their faith. A lot of supportive Christian adults behind their parents, having other Christian adults that the teen can look to for advice and support is so important. Being challenged about their religious faith. When a teen's challenged as a teenager for their faith, it's actually not a bad thing. It turns out that it'll strengthen that teen's faith muscles and will result in that teenager continuing on in their faith. Mom and dad, it is so important that your kids learn how to internalize their faith. See, it's not enough that they're nice kids or that they're doing well in school, that they play a sport or in band or in the gifted and talented program. Those things are great. But they need to make the Christian faith that they've learned so much about their own. They need to develop lifelong habits of personally meeting with God. But there's also something else that we need to take a look at when it comes to the way of Lot. And that is a failure to recognize the power of environment. You know, Lot was pretty confident that he'd do well wherever he was. His thought was, I could stay in the promised land with Uncle Abram and do well, or I could go down to Sodom and I'll still do well. It says in verse 13, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. You see, Lot chose to put himself in a really negative environment, and as a result, he lost almost everything he valued. He lost his possessions, he lost his marriage, his wife ends up dead. He lost his own morals as well as the spiritual virtue of his daughter. Ask yourself this. Have you ever found yourself in an environment where you made some really, really bad decisions that you would have never, ever made if you were back in your own home? Folks who have to travel quite a bit for business, they'll often agree that there's a much heavier moral temptation when you're on the road than when you're back home. Why is that? Well, it's because the environment's different. In the environment of the home, there's a support system of family and friends and church. 
You have a schedule of routines. There's a way of doing things at home which encourages responsible living and puts restraints on irresponsible living. But when you change the environment, suddenly there's more opportunity for disaster to happen. Some of us who are a little bit older, you can remember exactly where you were when the Space Shuttle Challenger lifted off into the sky and then blew up 73 seconds into its flight. Do you remember this? January 28, 1986, the whole world was shocked as we watched the video over and over and over again on the news. Is a video of a blue sky with twisted trails of smoke. Do you remember this? Large chunks of burning metal falling into the ocean. It was awful, and it was on repeat. The question being asked by everyone was, what caused the challenge to explode? What happened? Well, it turns out it had something to do with O-rings. The circular rubber seals that were supposed to fit snugly into the joints of the sections of the booster engines. The function of the O-rings was to prevent gases from leaking at the joints during the launch. They had performed well in all the other flights previous to that day. But on that day, on the day of the Challenger explosion, something was different. Do you know what that difference was? The environment. See, the temperature outside had dropped below the freezing mark. And under those conditions, the O-rings, they became brittle. They became inflexible. And despite the engineers' repeated warnings about the change in the environment, the directors of the program decided to push ahead anyway. They didn't think there was anything to worry about with the change of environment. You see, Paul was on to something when he said, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Person of faith understands they can't handle any environment and that we're not strong enough to not give in. So Lot failed to internalize his faith. He failed to recognize the importance of his environment. And finally, Lot failed to prioritize God. At the beginning of the message, I said there are two totally different ways of doing life. The way of Lot, the way of Abram. So what is the way of Lot? Take a look at verse 10. Lot looked around, saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then verse 11. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east, and the two men parted company. Now, I want you to notice something here. Notice that it mentions nothing about God. It mentions nothing about prayer in Lot's choices. Lot's working from an entirely horizontal vantage point, only what his eyes could see. It says that Lot chose for himself. He looked out towards Sodom and he said, mine. He didn't prioritize God at all, not God's thought or his mind or God's plan for him or his family. I see this so often. People move away from town to take a marginally better job. You've probably seen it too. They're doing well here. They're part of a great church. They've got great Christian friends involved in ministry. They're growing. But when they look out and the grass looks a little greener somewhere else, they say, mine. I can make a little more money over there. But what about your soul? Friends, again, having pastored for over 30 years, I've watched so many people follow the way of Lot. They prioritize their salaries over their souls, their finances over their families, their money over their marriages. Now, please, don't get this twisted, okay? I'm not saying that no one should move, obviously. I just did it, right? (laughs) I'm just asking, have you really prayed about it? Have you put first things first? Have you put your soul over your salary? Jesus' words in Matthew 6.33 are perfect for us in this situation. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if we do, Jesus adds his promise and everything else will be added to you. 
I've watched parents and teens make decisions for where they're going to go to college. And I try to remind them that, hey, look, right here, right now, you've got a supportive Christian community. You've got a supportive family. You've got people that love you, pray for you. But unfortunately, the answer I get most of the time was something along the lines of, but you got to understand, Pastor Scott, this particular college, it's ranked really high on the top schools in America, and it will look so good on my son or daughter's resume. It's always left me asking myself, yeah, but is going to that college better for your son or daughter's relationship with God? Have you prioritized your child's soul over their future salary? Maybe that is where they're supposed to go. Maybe they prayed about it. But I think it's worth asking the question. Abram made his relationship with God the top priority for his life. Verses 14 to 17. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. Now notice the difference between Abram's eyes and Lot's eyes. It says in verse 10, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now compare that to what we read about Abram in Genesis 13, 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Abraham waited on God. He waited on God. He didn't just go after whatever it was that looked good to him. Let me close this morning with a question. Do you believe that if you trust God with your life, that it'll do better for you than you ever could do for yourself? If you believe that God could do better for you than you, than you could ever do for yourself, folks, that's faith. You're walking in the footsteps of your father in faith, Abraham. But if you don't believe that, if you treat God like he's something you can take out and put away anytime you like, like some sort of God in the box, then you're following in the footsteps of Lot. Folks, we all have a choice to make. Seek him when you make it. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us follow the way of Abraham? the father of faith. Would you help us to have the faith that Abraham had in all the areas of our lives? Would you forgive us when we take that well-worn path of Lot, the, the path that seems right to us, that benefits us the most as we see it? Father, would you help us to choose your path over ours so we can in turn help others so that we can help others make good choices as well. Whether it's for our friends or our family, for our church, our work, it doesn't matter. Father, be with us as we go from here. Would you help us to have the faith of Abraham and not the faith of Lot? And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. amen and amen. Thank you so much for being here. God bless you. Have a fantastic week. Stay warm. You're dismissed.